guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 45th episode. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, we just wanted to put out a quick reminder that if you do enjoy listening to these episodes, please always feel free to tell your family and friends about the podcast. And you can always take a screenshot and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag Jack, tag myself, and tag the bodybuilding dietitians just to share our message around. And also, if you're ever interested in getting in contact, you know, in regards to coaching, please always feel free to check out our website, which is www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, and you can also find that in the show notes below. So today we've got an exciting question and answer episode lined up for you, but first we're going to give a bit of a life update because I feel like things have been pretty hectic over the last week, so uh, I'll let Jack take the floor. So yeah, it certainly has been a busy few weeks, and so yeah, I'll start off at last Sunday, and last Sunday we went to the IFBB Brisbane show, which was a great experience. Previously, Tierra and I have only been to the ICN show, so... Uh, and the AWMBS. So yeah, it was great to experience another federation. And yeah, what did you think about the show? Yeah, to be honest, I loved going to that show. And I think that it was incredibly beneficial for me just to get a really good idea of how the bikini girls, you know, walk out on stage, how they do their routines, how the judges take them through their posing. I think that's so important because obviously next year will be the first time that I compete with IFBB. So I just can't emphasize enough, guys, how important it is to actually go to shows before you compete, just so you can get a really good idea of what to expect. So there's no surprises on the day, but it was amazing to be honest. It was a, it was a very, very well-run show and yeah it was great and it was just interesting for jack and i because obviously as everyone knows ifbb is the enhanced stream of bodybuilding you know so people are allowed to take performance enhancing drugs and considering that we've only it's just non-tested yes well yes (laughs) still illegal it's still technically illegal but not illegal within the federation if you get what i mean But uh, yeah, that was certainly an experience, you know, being able to see a whole different stream of bodybuilders, if you know what I mean, but very impressive to say the least. Yeah, definitely was an experience. And yeah, I don't think I will be competing in IFBB anytime soon, but that doesn't mean I won't have clients in there. And yeah, it was very interesting to see how it's run and what the quality is like. The standard was definitely different between IFBB and a natural federation for obvious reasons. The, the enhanced guys were definitely a lot bigger. However, like I, it was a toss up on the conditioning across both federations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, you know. It was really interesting because obviously just the week before Jack and I had gone to the ICN state championships. So it was still very fresh in our minds, you know, seeing that level of conditioning that a uh, natural competitor will bring and then one week later seeing what an enhanced competitor will bring and ah you know these are obviously you know these are just our opinions um and i don't know jack maybe you agree with me as well but it just seems that to be honest i find natural competitors a hell of a lot more impressive in terms of conditioning 
Uh, I'd say that from what we saw, you know, comparing the two weeks, that natural competitors, they just, they get a hell of a lot leaner. It's amazing. And to be honest, like up on that bodybuilding stage, I didn't see many striated glutes. Like they were a bit of a rarity. <laughs> yeah, there was only like a small handful compared to the ICN show the week before where you weren't really competitive unless you had um, your glutes were in. And yeah, we won't pretend to know a heap about that side of things. And we don't know whether it's just due to they're looking more for size over leanness or um, strided glutes just aren't a, as much of a priority on that side. And yeah, so it's, we'll just have to be a bit more clued in in that respect. Yeah, I guess that's just the trade-off, you know, between being enhanced versus being natural. Obviously, the enhanced people, they are huge. These dudes are massive up on the stage, like the over 100 kilogram guys up there. And shit, man, like that's just crazy being up on a bodybuilding stage at over 100 kilograms. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's just the trade-off, perhaps, that you get more size, but perhaps you just... I, I don't think that you can't reach that level of conditioning, but... Perhaps, you know, there is more of a reliance on the drug side of things and perhaps slightly less, you know, reliance on the nutritional side of things. Whereas for natural competitors, you know, I think that they really, really, really emphasize dieting hard, dieting down till you are just like skin lean, right? And for anyone who needs a reference point to what we're uh, referring to, Think about all of Brandon Kempter's clients, you know, BK Conditioning Speaks for Itself, or Damo Tut, who is up on that stage, you know, or uh, gosh, who else can you think of? Yeah, there's a lot. But yeah, if, I don't know, Brandon Kempter always springs to mind. Um, so yeah, I, I know a lot of the listeners may not have heard of him, so especially the American people. So uh, just Instagram him, he's just Brandon Kempter. Yeah, he'll, he's like proper elite conditioning yeah we had him on our podcast for an episode i think it was episode nine if i remember correctly um maybe i got the number wrong but we uh interviewed him when we very first started this podcast phenomenal episode anyway yeah in addition to that show jack also had his previous coach alan mayo competes who did classic physique for the first time and alan is a natural competitor himself he competes in icn as well but he actually got first place in the ifbb classic physique first timers which was just amazing outstanding seeing him up on the stage mm, yeah he really did um compete with the big boys and his p posing was easily the best there as well and it was really phenomenal so Congrats to him. Yeah, it was cool to see Alan hold his own up there. And uh, we should be seeing him next weekend because Jack and I will be flying down this next weekend to Sydney for the ICN Nationals show. So we'll be staying down there over the weekend just in an Airbnb with a few friends. And man, I can't wait to see that show. Jack and I don't even have competitors competing. We're literally just going down for the show and the pro show in particular. It's going to be freaking competitive i can't wait to see those that pro bodybuilding lineup yeah it'll be an amazing experience uh, we've never been before so yeah it'll be awesome yeah and i guess in other news jesus christ like jack and i this past week have just been so busy moving house we uh we've moved into a new house together now and this past week just getting so much stuff organized it is crazy like because i lived in a previous share house so just yeah, God, just 
finding a new housemate on Gumtree, so dodgy to say the least, but I finally did it. But, you know, running around doing that and, you know, just getting like appliances organized, everything into the house. We've spent quite a few days with my dad, you know, packing up the trailer with all this huge furniture and big beds and dressers and couches and just been nuts, but hell, I've got quite a few new low weigh-ins thanks to all the extra activity. <laughs> I am pretty beat up though, and I think Jack is as well, literally, we're like, I'm just covered in bruises just from like carrying so much furniture up and down stairs. I actually went to a posing workshop yesterday and the girls were like, oh my God, what happened to your legs? And I'm like, oh, I've just been moving house. <laughs> I'm a bit, I've got a bit of uh, quite a bit purple and Jack, kind of busted his toe open trying to put together our new Ikea couch, but <laughs> we're still standing, we're still here, and uh, it's so nice to be in this new place, and now everything, you know, is put away. It really feels like a home, and I guess the only thing missing now is a border collie. Yeah, hopefully we'll be getting her, him or she in January. But yeah, in terms of other news, I've wrapped up my mini cut, which I think has been going for about three weeks now, and yeah, I've definitely had enough of it I think I've cut down what I need to I'm definitely not I'm not really lean I, I'm just in an acceptable position to continue adding weight again and yeah I'm actually today I'm tossing up recording this on Monday I'm just tossing up whether I do need like a full rest week because all that moving really did beat me up I've got quite a few niggles that have kind of gotten a bit worse from lugging furniture for three days so yeah I know that if I do this week of training i yeah, none of it will get better. It'll only get worse. So I just need to be in that mindset where I tell myself that I need a break instead of continually pushing more. Yeah, just thinking about the long game, because you're having quite a bit of issues with your tricep right now, right? Which is inhibiting, you know, doing a lot of pushing movements. Yeah, I've got, yeah, tricep. I'm like my toe is in pieces because I <laughs> dropped a couch on it. Gosh. And yeah, I've got a few other things as well, but that's yeah. just the life of a, of a bodybuilder. Exactly. But you know, like in the grand scheme of things, you know, a few days taking off, just helping you recover might be more optimal when we're thinking about the long game compared to, you know, maybe training suboptimally for a number of weeks. So it's just about that trade-off, but it is really hard to make that kind of decision. Mm, it is. And yeah, I'll probably keep thinking about it until till we go to the gym. Yeah, so, but with your mini cut, you know, obviously how much did you lose during those three weeks? It was pretty damn successful. Yeah, so I lost about three, three and a half to four kilos. And yeah, it was, it was not that difficult. Like hunger wasn't an issue, but I did sort of, I, the main reason I did it was more to get back into the mindset of doing something and also not be eating uh, a crazy amount of food not feeling really sluggish and nauseous and I accomplished all of those things like it wasn't the mini cut wasn't as much to reduce my body fat because I still could have kept gaining it was more due to the other factors which which are all good now but yeah I'll I probably will take this week off and maintain my body weight during this week and then start pushing again once training's back to normal sounds like a plan yeah uh yeah in terms of my prep so I've now I'm now five weeks down so I'm just under 20 weeks out now so shiz man it is flying but uh this past week just from moving you know my my body weight has luckily dropped quite a bit my 
Calories and macros are still the exact same from what they were when I gave an update about two weeks ago. So I'm still on 275 carb, 150 protein, and 40 fat every day, whether or not I train. And just this past week, you know, I've seen like another 800 gram drop. So uh, I'm down now to, I broke the 65, so I'm down to 64.9 kilograms, which is pretty good. So in the last five weeks of prep, I've lost just over three kilograms. So yeah, I'm really happy with uh, how everything's progressing and things are just, things are pretty good now. I'm just excited to, you know, settle into a new routine in this house and just keep working on the business. Sydney in a few days should be really fun, but yeah, just prodding along, it's good. I've, But I feel like we've both been so damn busy in real life that we've just kind of taken, not even on purpose, but just like a social media hiatus. Like I just have not been on Instagram at all because I've just been so busy, but sometimes that's actually nice. Like I find that when I'm less busy on Instagram, I'm more busy in real life, which obviously matters a hell of a lot more. <laughs> but yeah, um, I'm excited to hop back on social media again soon once, you know, everything's just settled and chilled. All right, so we're gonna hop straight into the questions now. So Jack, what's the first question? So the first one's by Jim and he asks, what happens over a seven day fast? Drinking only water, no calories. Now, this is a really interesting one because Jack and I actually learned about this during one of our first nutritional sciences courses that we did at uni back in second year. So this, uh, the main thing I like wanna emphasize is that when you think about you know fasting and burning certain fuel sources in the body, it's not just one or the other, like you're not just burning all of your glycogen at once or just all of your skeletal muscle or just all of your fatty acid tissue. You know, it's a very complex system and things are always, like all of these things are happening at the same time. One just might dominate over another. But essentially what we learned is that if you're fasting for seven days, usually during the first three days, what you're going to do is you're going to deplete liver glycogen. You hold around 110 grams of glycogen in your liver. And then just through, you know, movement during the day, you're going to burn through uh, skeletal glycogen. So the glycogen within your skeletal muscle, you're also going to be burning, you know, a few amino acids from your skeletal muscle too. And you'll be burning a little bit of fatty acid tissue as well. And then what we learned is that after those three days, the next three to five days, because all of your glycogen stores are depleted, what's going to happen is you're going to continue to burn amino acids. So through gluconeogenesis, mainly amino acids from your skeletal muscle are going to start to break down and you'll turn those into glucose as a fuel source and you'll still continue to burn some fatty acids as well. But then after about five days, because the body, you know, it needs to preserve its skeletal muscle mass and it doesn't want to start dipping into visceral muscle, which is the muscle around your organs, what you're then going to do is you're predominantly going to start oxidizing fat tissue as a fuel for the next five onward days. So that's pretty much what we learned is going to happen within like, you know, a seven day fast. And obviously within those first three days where you're depleting all of your glycogen stores, if you were to weigh yourself, 
you would see drastic you know decreases on the scale because as we know with glycogen every gram you're going to lose three to four milliliters of water so yeah those first three days you're going to really see the scale weight drop and after that it's probably going to start slowing down and plateauing but man i wouldn't encourage anyone doesn't eat for seven days <laughs> yeah especially if you have any sort of performance aspirations it's probably not a good idea there have been some research into fasting and the benefits. For example, like some of the ketone bodies have been uh, predicted to be have some beneficial effects, like especially for insulin sensitivity as well. And for example, decreasing the rate of cell apoptosis, which is basically when cells die, essentially. Yeah, but there's not too much research into it. Like you might be able to get the same benefits from just like a one day fast as opposed to a seven day fast. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much it really. Yeah. I'd say that fasting for seven days is certainly not sustainable and not very healthy. Uh, so what I just recommend to implement sustainability and longevity, just put yourself in a, like a relative caloric deficit and ride that out for a hell of a lot longer than seven days so that you can lose, you know, predominantly fat tissue, you know, maintain your skeletal muscle mass. You can still function during the day because you still have energy and... And yeah, that's just assuming that you want to lose weight, but there's lots of other um, benefits to fasting as well, because we don't know whether the question asked is interested in weight loss. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to our next question. So this one asks, I'm in peak week at the moment and had 700 extra calories in fats, but weight still went down. How slash why? So I think this is a good uh, question to answer for those in prep or those wrapping up prep. And the reason being is sometimes when you do overeat in prep, obviously the goal is to stick to the game plan, but slip ups do happen. And depends on the, uh, I guess the meal composition that you're eating. So for this instance, the question asker ate um, purely for fat. So maybe something like nuts or nut butter. And the reason why this might still result in a low weigh in is because unlike carbohydrates, fats are just fat and they'll be, they'll be stored as fat, which takes up a lot less space than something like um, carbohydrates, which are stored as glycogen. So when you consume excess carbohydrates, uh, you'll yeah, digest and absorb them. They'll be stored as glycogen alongside water as well, because you need water to store them. So for every, we've mentioned this many times before, but for every one gram of glycogen, you need about four mils of water. So that's why you'll notice an, a massive weight spike the next morning if you overeat in carbohydrates, and that won't necessarily all be fat. Obviously, if you eat in, in an energy surplus for a prolonged period, then you will start to put on fat again. But if you do eat 700 extra calories in fat, it will still be stored as fat. So I wouldn't necessarily use a scale in that instance as a, as a way of looking to see whether you've gained fat or not. In saying that, you could still be in an energy deficit depending on how large a deficit you were in that day. If you do eat over 700 more calories than what you were prescribed, you could still be at maintenance or in a deficit. So that's, that's part of your answer there. Um, the other factors that we need to consider are like, did you drink less water that day? Did you have less food bulk? Um, did you go to the bathroom more often for number two? And yeah, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I guess I think that you covered some really important points. I guess the only thing is, is that because we don't have too much information in this question, 
perhaps what they're doing is they're doing a few low days so that's why their fats have been higher but even though their fats have been higher you know because they're going through a quote-unquote depletion phase where they're eating less carbohydrates like you said that's probably why their scale weight did go down because they're just eating less carbs making up for more fats maybe for a bit more satiation and yeah it was simply just fluid but again there's there that information isn't provided in the question but that's what I could assume could have possibly happened too. Mm. And yeah, I hope I didn't uh, read the question wrong. I assumed when you say 700 extra calories that you actually went off your plan. Mm. Um, yeah, is that what you assumed? Maybe. I hope you're not going off your plan in peak week. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to the next one. So the next one's by Emily and she asks, benefits slash reasons for ice baths in peak week. Now, this is interesting because I've actually, uh, I've, I, I haven't heard about people taking ice baths specifically in peak week, have you? No, I haven't. Yeah, well, we learned a little bit, you know, about taking ice baths or like cold water immersion during our, you know, nutrition exercise studies. And to be honest, the research is kind of mixed. Like old research used to, used to suggest that, you know, you should take an ice bath for anywhere between like 10 to 15 minutes in water that is somewhere between like 10 to 15 degrees Celsius, so quite cold. Uh, and the reasoning for that is because they say that it can help, you know, enhance recovery and it can help, you know, kind of promote recovery for, you know, small minute muscle tears, reduce inflammation, all that jazz. But also, what an ice bath is going to do for you is that it's going to cause vasoconstriction, especially in your extremities, so your legs and your arms and your head and everything like that. And it's going to constrict those blood vessels and redirect all the blood to your core because obviously we need to keep our vital organs warm and we need to keep our core temperature at 37 degrees in order to survive. So I don't actually know if it would be that beneficial because I'd imagine, you know, especially approaching a competition prep, you know, you don't want to reduce blood volume in your extremities because obviously you want to be more pumped. But again, this is going to be very acute. The only thing I could think is that if you were trying to, Jack and I definitely don't condone this, but if you were trying to perhaps drop some water weight, the reason why you would actually drop water weight is because if all of that blood volume is, you know, redirected to a smaller area in your core, your blood pressure is going to increase. And because your blood pressure is going to increase, it's going to put more pressure on your kidney and you need to reduce your blood pressure. So you need to reduce your blood volume. So you're going to pee more. So that's actually why, you know, you would pee more essentially after you take a really, really cold bath or a really cold shower. And that's actually why guys, if you ever go swimming in a really cold pool or maybe go, you know, scuba diving or snorkeling, you might always find that you really have to pee or, you know, you go to the ocean, you really have to pee afterwards. And that's the reason why is because that blood redirects to your core, increases that blood volume and you have to get rid of it in some way. So yeah, I can think that it would make you a little more dehydrated. Yeah, I don't see any benefits to ice baths in peak week. Like I'll just say that bluntly. Uh, <laughs> I do see, personally, I'm more of a fan of like heat as opposed to cold, uh, more because it, like I use heat packs and hot baths very regularly, like almost every day of the week, to be honest. And 
yeah, I just find that localized heat on an area, like directs blood flow to that area, um, which is like, especially for my back, it like really helps um, heat helps reduce pain. I guess cold does as well, but um, heat just leaves me feeling a lot more mobile, more blood in that region and a lot more looser and less tight. Yeah, I think for like when you get an injury for inflammation, the first thing you're supposed to do is apply ice very acutely, but then chronically you're supposed to apply heat. That's right, mm. right? Yeah, I yeah. So after 48 hours, I think approximately you, you start using heat and but yeah, I don't think that neither of them are magic cures like and I guess something like ice is going to be anti-inflammatory, but it's going to be a different type of anti-inflammatory compared to something like uh, neurofin or ibuprofen, which are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. And that's because ice is just like it's a topical uh, anti-inflammatory. It's not going to be something that affects like the inflammatory pathway. Yeah, I definitely would not recommend an ice bath, especially during your carb up, because like like I said before, it's vasoconstricting. You're not redirecting blood to your muscles. So you're not really going to be able to transport a lot of that glucose into your muscles uh, when you're carving up. Uh, and also it just sounds like torture as well, because I think anyone who knows who's been through a competition prep or an extended diet that you're cold all the freaking time. So literally jumping in an ice bath would sound like torture to me. So I'd say just stay at a comfortable body temperature, to be honest. Uh, I don't, I really, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's necessary. Mm. So yeah, we, we spent about five minutes saying no to that question. <laughs> So the next question is, what are your best tips for a natural physique competitor to stand out on stage? Ooh, all right. What comes to your mind first? So definitely assuming that you've got the package, you're lean enough, you've got good muscularity as well. You fit the criteria well. Essentially, it comes down to stage presence. And I think Tierra and I can definitely notice that there are people who stand out on stage and there are people who don't like I was actually telling Tierra this after the ICN show that there are some people with really good physiques who come out on stage, but when you, when they walk off the stage, you're like, wow, I didn't actually look at him once while he was on stage. Mm -hmm. My eyes were completely drawn to two or three other guys. And it doesn't just come down to posing. It also just comes down to like, how bad do you want it? And like, can, can you emanate the energy that you're feeling? I think a huge component of it is just confidence, you know? like from the first second you like step on that stage smile you know try to get people's attention constantly you know moving in some way or another because like jack said you're if you have more eyes on you especially more of the judges eyes on you they're going to be able to uh mark you a lot more compared to someone else who just doesn't have that level of confidence even if they have the best physique you know sometimes they just might not look at them as much. And you can really tell who has confidence on a stage. I think a huge component of it is definitely facial expression, but also just body movement as well. Even in a pose, you know, some people are just doing these small little things with their hands and their feet and twisting their thighs around and just like moving in some way or another. And they're just having fun. And a, like the reason why they're able to do that is probably because they practiced and they practiced and they practiced. Yeah. And I would highly recommend listening to one of our previous episodes. I think it's episode number 32 with the ICN Queensland president, Jason Woodforth. 
And yeah, he goes into a lot of depth about what they're looking for on stage and what makes people stand out and some things not to do as well. Mm, Yeah, I think that episode is a great reference for that question. All right, so we're going to move on to another question. So this one was asked by Naomi and she says, do you take caffeine slash coffee every day and is this bad? What about building a tolerance? So yeah, Tiara and I are a bit different in this regards. We we have the same opinions, but we have different practices. So I take caffeine just once a day prior to training and I don't try not to have any on my rest days as well. Uh, whereas Tiara goes all out with caffeine. All out? <laughs> wow, man, my one coffee a day. <laughs> Slow down, eh? Plus, plus before training. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. One coffee a day plus two scoops of pre-workout. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Off the rails, man. Dude, there's people out there that are drinking like 10 cups of coffee a day. Yeah, I, yeah. Was, I wasn't being serious. But... <laughs> well, we've, we've definitely changed our uh, caffeine intake over the years. Did you know, I actually never drank coffee before I met Jack because I always thought it was like this dark brown liquid that tasted terrible that made my parents just cranky. So like, because my parents, when I was little, would always get me to go get them a cup of, cup of coffee when they were in bed. And... Uh, Oh, like, I don't know. I just remember like if they didn't have it, they'd be stressed out and I'd be like, I never want to drink this stuff. But uh, yeah, Jack actually got me to have my very first coffee when I had just turned 19. So Mm. wow, it took me a while to have coffee. Then I got addicted to it and I was having about six coffees a day and I thought more was better. And then my sleep went to shit and like, I was crazy. Oh, I was so anxious. I would like have heart palpitations and then I'd be like, Oh, maybe it would be better if I have another cup of coffee. (laughs) Anyway, I now have one coffee a day and I have pre-workout in the afternoon before I work out. Um, Yeah, anyway. But yeah, yeah, to get onto the actual question, (laughs) uh, essentially the recommendation for caffeine is actually like the upper limit is actually quite high. I can't actually remember exactly, but I think it's... I think it's like 400 milligrams a day. mm, Which is about four cups of coffee. And which is, yeah, quite a lot. So essentially taking it every day is not a problem at all. Like there, if you actually drink coffee, especially there are a lot of benefits to that in particular. And essentially, if we're talking about performance, you'll always get the performance benefit regardless of how much you take. You do still build up a tolerance, but that's more due to the, uh, not due to, that's more associated with the feel good feeling and the burst of energy you get from having caffeine. Yeah, because the reason why caffeine actually perks you up is because caffeine is very, very similar to the molecule that attaches to the adenosine receptor. So as like during the day, what happens is that adenosine builds up in our body. So adenosine is kind of like this chemical that makes us feel tired. And what's supposed to happen if you're not drinking any caffeine is that adenosine builds up You get really tired at night and then when you fall asleep, the adenosine in your body is cleared and then the next morning you wake up again and then adenosine starts to build up. So you can go through that nice sleep-wake cycle. But what caffeine does is it actually attaches to the adenosine receptor and it blocks adenosine so that you don't feel tired. And that's why coffee makes you feel, you know, more energetic, more aroused. And 
Also, you know, caffeine can bind to certain receptors on our muscle cells called the Ri1 receptors, and that actually holds them open and more calcium can go into the muscle. And calcium will in the sacmoplasic reticulum. But anyway, that helps with muscular contraction. So that's from the muscular side of things. But caffeine can also increase, you know, blood pressure. It, it helps with a lot of different things in terms of exercise performance. But uh, yeah, so you can build up a tolerance to it because obviously if you're always blocking that adenosine receptor then your body will try to produce more adenosine so then if you don't have coffee like for and you're used to having a lot of coffee you're gonna feel very very tired and so you'll need more coffee more caffeine but at the same time if you do have you know the recommendation for exercise performance which is around three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight one hour before exercise that's still shown that that will help with your exercise performance all right so this next question will be a good one for jack so this was asked by ben dang it says how should you regulate low and high days during a cut and how high should carbs get how high what what is the limit (laughs) so yeah it's a very individual question and typically Uh, If I was to provide a outline, I guess. So essentially you have your total weekly calories and that's the amount that you need to be in to be in a deficit. So an example of that is you could eat in abundance for five days. Let's say you eat 4,000 calories for five days and you don't eat anything for the remainder of the two days. You're still in a deficit and you'll lose weight. Obviously that's not ideal, but that's just an example. So essentially in a... When we do high and low days, we try and plan it uh, to be very very individualized and, for example, put their low days on their rest days and their easier training days and then have higher carbs when they really need it on their uh, harder training days, which is typically like the leg days and maybe like a harder upper body session. So usually we go with three high days a week and four low days, of course. And typically we use that weekly energy balance guide as a means of like how low can we get the low days and how high can we get the high days. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Like it's not, it's just uh, really maths and the how high we go and how low we go go is just going to be dependent on the vid on the individual. Some people don't really like going super, super low on their low days because they can't function. And Yeah, in terms of how high you can go, basically just look at that energy guideline for the week and ensure it fits within that. So for example, 300 carbs on all seven days of the week and you wanted to split that into low and high days, what you would do is, let's say you wanted 150 grams on your four low days. That means you could go all the way up to 500 grams of carbs on your three high days. Wow, that sounds like heaven, 500 grams. But I guess again, that's the trade-off. Sometimes, you know, I don't want to use the word suffer, but it's not necessarily going to be comfortable consuming 150 grams of carbs on a day. But then some people like kind of like going through that and looking forward to, oh my God, I've got three days straight of 500 carb and like literally packets of pasta and bread. So yeah, it's really individual. Depends on what you want to (laughs) do. Yeah. I ultimately like you have to think as well as that on those 
that day where you eat 500, it's just going to be stored as glycogen. You'll train better, you'll move more, you'll feel better. So that's, I guess, the, the main benefits of high days. It's not going to magically result in more fat loss though. Yeah, definitely not. If anything, honestly, just during a contest prep, it's just a nice way to kind of start preparing in advance for a peak week if you were to do a backload, just so that you and your coach know how you respond to a higher carbohydrate intake following a certain period of time where you're quote unquote depleted on very low carbohydrates. So this next question is by Jordan and he asks, what's your favorite split exercise and or split? Hmm. All right. So what's your favorite split or exercise and or split? So I get my favorite splits, probably the one I'm doing now, and it's just three upper body days and two lower. So two of those upper days are, I guess, more intense, if you want to call it like the bigger, like OHP, barbell bench press, like T-bar row, that sort of stuff. And then my third upper day is at the end of the week. It's more of an accessory based day where I can really, after that, I'm pretty wrecked by by that stage of the week. I'd just done RDLs the day before. So it's really a day to like do a bit more arms, do stuff more like um, cable pullover and some upright rows and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I do look forward to that day. And it means I can really concentrate on the bigger lifts earlier during the week. And uh, I know because you used to do push-pull legs, push-pull legs, rest. How do you find you know your current split compared to when you used to do that other split? Yeah, so back then I... I guess it was a couple of years ago now. So I definitely wasn't as in tuned with like volume and intensity frequency. I was just doing what I thought was right. And uh, at the end of the day, I was getting injured a lot more regularly than I was. My progression wasn't quite as good as well. I was really just training to train. And the results definitely did come because I was training hard. I was eating in a surplus. Um, Those are the two, some of the two most important formulas for muscle gain. But now my strength has been more consistent um i've been more injury free touch wood and yeah i've i think my physique is um has made better gains than previously yeah i actually remember when jack and i very first met and i was following a push pull leg split and i was probably doing it for like maybe almost a year and then jack questioned me he's like you want to be a bikini athlete. Why are you training your upper body four times a week? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I, um, I only like, I, I swapped over. I've gone through quite a few different splits, but my current one, which I really, really do enjoy, I train five days a week. I do three lower body and two full upper body sessions. And so it's the reverse of me. Yes, it's the exact same. It's the exact reverse of Jack. So whenever he's training upper, I'm training lower and vice versa. But that's working really, really well for me right now. And I love it. I used to do like, I used to do a four day split. So I do two lower and then I do one push day and one pull day and I just auto-regulate my rest days and that actually worked really well for me with my uni and my work schedule because things were a bit sporadic and unlike Jack I couldn't be like every single Wednesday is going to be a rest day because sometimes I just I needed to train on Wednesday because I was like way too busy on Thursday kind of thing uh so yeah Anyway, yeah, I love my current split right now. I think we've both trialed and aired a lot of different things, but yeah, right now it seems to be working really well. And finally, three and a half years later, after being together, we finally have the rest days on the same day. So that's always nice. 
Yeah, it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, at least we don't have to walk to the gym alone again, like anymore. So that's nice. Mm. All right. So we're going to move on to our last question for the day, which was asked by Arid Nutritional. So this one says A's and D's of macro tracking for those with little to no experience in nutrition and fitness. So yeah, I've, I've never heard of A's and D's before, but I'm assuming it's the foundations, like the basis of macro tracking and for someone starting out. So yeah, it definitely is an interesting experience learning how to macro track because for someone who's new to the industry, it's like quite a weird phenomenon having to track all their food. And usually like we've had to do this, Tierra and I have had quite a lot of experience teaching people who have never even heard about my fitness power through our dietetics placement and having to explain it to clients and stuff like that and people who say have like renal disease they need to count like the amount of sodium and potassium they have as well obviously yeah type 1 diabetics in particular they need to be very meticulous with tracking their carbohydrate intake in order for it to match their insulin dose so sometimes tracking is actually essential yeah and i guess I'm of a little bit differing opinion as what's easiest compared to what we learn. And what we learn is that for, I guess for type one diabetics, they don't actually need to be, they need to be accurate. And they usually go off like um, a slice of bread is like 15 grams, like a banana, um, that sort of stuff. They, as far as I'm aware, the average type one diabetic doesn't use something like my fitness pal. They usually just go off serves of carbohydrates. So it might be one, one and a half, two, two and a half. And then they base their uh, insulin dose around that. But someone who is tracking it for actual nutrition and fitness, I would definitely recommend MyFitnessPal as a first start. And that's, it's just really easy. Um, I would basically explain how MyFitnessPal works to them, how some entries are more accurate than others, how to always look at the barcode and compare your food to the barcode on MyFitnessPal to check it's accurate. Um, how to construct a food yourself in case your barcode isn't there. Um, everything about Nuttab and how that's more accurate for fresh fruits, fruits, vegetables, and meats. Yeah, and just things like weighing foods cooked versus raw, like actually weighing out raw rice before you cook it rather than like weighing out cooked rice or a cooked potato or, you know, just things like that. Not to say necessarily is one is right or wrong, Although Jack and I usually would advocate and recommend that you do just weigh all your food raw to be uh, most accurate to account for, you know, uh, water absorption within different foods. But yeah, as long as you're consistent with whatever entry you're using. But yeah, man, it, I know it can be a struggle at first. I remember when I first got into this stuff when I was like 18 years old, you know, I was looking up on like bodybuilding.com forums and people were saying what they were eating and I didn't understand how people were like, oh yeah, you gotta eat 163 grams of sweet potato. And I'm like, how many cups is that? Like, I didn't even know that scales existed and that you could actually weigh food. I only thought in terms of actually measuring things in cups and measuring things in like teaspoons. So, and then I wasn't even using my fitness pal. I was trying to do it all on Excel spreadsheets. So like, when I was like weighing different grains and stuff, I was just using cup measurements and wow, the inaccuracy, man, I don't even know. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a lot. Even in the last few years, like there's been because of the popularity and bodybuilding and fitness there has been a massive upsurge and how accurate things are and like just just like anything like 
mm-hmm. any part of technology. Yeah, but all, all I got to say is, you, you know, you just got to start. The main thing is get yourself a good food scale and just start weighing your food and just entering in the food in terms of grams. Don't always go off like, yeah, the one portion size or like one cracker, one piece of bread kind of thing because like the deviation can be huge with those kind of things. So yeah, always weigh it. And you're always learning, you know, even recently Jack's like, why aren't you weighing your almonds? And I'm like, oh, I thought every single almond just weighed the same. So my fitness pal entry, I just put in like five almonds, but then obviously you realize sometimes they can be a different size and weigh a different amount. So heck, you'll I never- I think you knew yeah. that, you were just being lazy. <laughs> I wasn't being lazy, I was still doing it, but I'm just trying to say you'll never stop learning. <laughs> Okay, guys, so uh, that's it for the questions. We'll just finish on our very last thing for the day, and that is one thing that we learned this week. So, yeah, my thing's pretty easy, uh, simple, I should say. Uh, Just essentially that moving is really tough and... (laughs) You poor man. (laughs) No, that's not what I learned. Um, I learned that when people say, oh, I'm moving this week, I'm usually, oh, they're moving um yeah that's cool but i don't actually associate that with all the the manual labor that's involved yeah it is crazy uh completely wrecks your mrv as well yeah jesus um oh my gosh just i I swear just i walked fifteen thousand steps that one massive day on thursday and i didn't go for it i usually go for like long walks during the day all we were doing is walking around the house and like carrying massive freaking cupboards up and down these stairs Oh my gosh. You don't even have that much stuff either. Yeah. It's just so nice that the whole house is now like clean and everything's put away. Like when we first just moved everything into the house, it was like a bombshell. But yeah, moving is tough, but heck in prep guys, it's a very good way to burn calories and be productive at the same time. So can't complain in that sense. Uh, One thing that I learned this week, this is also following on kind of from last week from that documentary I was talking about from One Strange Rock, which is on Netflix. Really cool. But uh, one thing that I learned is that, you know, astronauts in space, obviously because there's no gravity in space. um, Initially, I only thought that the major risk for that is that, you know, there's a loss of bone mineral density because you need to be doing compound movements and you need gravity in order to maintain your bone mineral density. And when astronauts go to space, they are renowned for losing quite a large proportion of their bone mineral density just because there's no gravity. But what I also like learned is that because there's no gravity, right, you're the fluids within your body just go whack because we don't, we just take it for granted, but actually being here on earth and here on the ground, you know, all of our fluids should technically, you know, be, be pulled down. That's why we have a cardiovascular system with valves and pumps and our, you know, the venous return system that pumps fluid back up to our head and it actually has to work quite hard to um to work against gravity in that sense but when you go into space you're just like a big kind of like floating water balloon and there's just like water just like you know fluid in your body going everywhere and that's why a lot of uh astronauts actually get very sick and throw up a lot because they're you know they can't properly digest their food and you know they just get these awful headaches because their blood volumes just all over the place and jesus christ if you think that you have git issues down here on earth (laughs) oh my god imagine having like ibs up in space that would be terrible man how the hell would you go to the bathroom in space 
How do you do yeah. it? I think I saw it in Austin. Messy. Yeah, no, no, no. I saw in that Austin Powers movie, you know, they like, oh, what? I can't even remember his name. I think the little midget sits down on a toilet and gets like sucked out. They, I think they have like suction cups for their, uh, for their toilets. Anyway, that's the end of this episode. <laughs> we always add something about poo, don't we? Oh yeah, we are notorious for that. I don't know what a TBD episode would be if we uh, didn't mention anything about poop. So yeah, that's it for this week, guys. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the Q&A. If you did, please remember to repost us on your Instagram stories. Uh, Tag myself, tag Tierra, and tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll see you next week.